0: So I want to pray for us and we're going to be continuing in our study of, of equip the church and we're talking today about discipleship. So I want to pray for us. And we'll jump into the scripture together. So Father God, I thank you for your faithfulness. God, I thank you that you are the one true living God. Father, I thank you that you bring us hope um, regardless of where we're at, Lord, that no one is too far from receiving your love, God. And I just pray for anyone here who hasn't experienced um, to be born again, Lord, to, to pass from death to life pray that you'd work on their hearts, Father. I pray for all of us that you'd give us ears to hear your your word today. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're talking about discipleship. Now, I've done a few um, teachings from time to time about what a disciple is. If you guys are interested in that, you can go to our website at mitchellbreen.com. On the equip section, you can look at what a disciple is. But today, what I wanted to focus on is the life of a disciple's hard. Jesus says that we have to deny ourselves, pick up our cross to be a disciple. And as we follow Jesus, um, it's sometimes difficult to finish that race, right? We can get started. I think if we did how to show of hands, if you know someone who was on fire for Christ and then maybe six months later, a year later, two years later, was right back to where they were, right? So how can we maintain our relationship with Christ? How can we be a disciple who endures to the end? isn't just up and down our relationship with Christ, but really endures to the end. I wanna look at 2 Timothy chapter four because we see the apostle Paul, who was a, a disciple who, who endured to the very end of his race. And he's encouraging one of his disciples, Timothy, who's in the middle of his race, who's in some pretty intense stuff. And Paul's giving him some advice. That's more than advice because it is the word of God. God's speaking through him. But he's giving him some advice on how Timothy can finish the race just as Paul had finished his race. And I love this section of scripture because Paul writes Timothy two letters of encouraging him on how to finish his race, how to be a pastor that glorifies God. And really in these verse eight, or eight verses, I really think he sums up what these two books are about. So I wanna start in verse one and read this scripture with you guys. 2 Second, uh, Second Timothy chapter 4, verse one. He says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things and do our afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. When we look at this scripture, Paul starts this phrase by saying, Timothy, I charge you. And this phrase, I charge you, is like a military phrase. It's a, it's a phrase of authority. It's a phrase of intensity because Paul knows that Timothy as a pastor and any Christian who's a disciple, we're in a spiritual war, we're in a spiritual battle. Now let's think about if I was to tell my son, if he was going to go um, play a paintball battle and I said, all right, Stone, man, go get him, right? I want him to win because it's a fun, fun little game. But if my son is 19, 20 years old, he's enlisting in the military, he's about to engage in active combat to fight for our nation, my charge to him is going to be a little bit more serious, right? I'm going to say, I'm going to give him my last words of advice, knowing this could be the last time I talked to him, knowing that he's about to go accomplish something that has a very big impact not just on his own life of survival, but for the survival of our country. And that's what Paul's saying to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, I charge you because you're in a spiritual war, you're in a spiritual battle that has eternal consequences. And we're gonna find that even in the church of Ephesus, people's lives were on the line, that the Roman government had come down the church and Nero had started a very intense persecution. And because of that, people were turning away from the church. People were turning away from the gospel because... Their friends, their disciples, were being martyred um, for their faith. And so Timothy is living in a very intense time. But what is the motivation behind the charge? What's the power behind this charge? And we see Paul continues and says, Not only do I charge you, Timothy, but I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. There's two really important ingredients to Paul's charge to Timothy. Number one, he's telling Timothy, remember who you serve. You don't serve a church. You don't serve me, Paul. You serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And who we serve and knowing who we serve, it matters. The second thing that Paul encourages Timothy with is he encourages them with judgment that this isn't just a temporal thing of you serving Christ, but there's coming a day when Jesus Christ is returning and he's gonna judge the living and the dead. And not only you, Timothy, will have to give account to God for how you led his church, but every person you preached to, every person you ran across, we never run across a temporal person, right? Every single person we meet is an eternal soul that's gonna live forever, whether that be in heaven or in hell separated from God. And Paul says to Timothy, remember, Timothy, what's really on the line here? I think this is important starting with our charge comes back to who we know and who is Jesus Christ. I was thinking this because, you know, we've started this boxing gym and boxing has been on my mind a little bit. And I was thinking about, you know, when you set up a fight with somebody, say it's an amateur boxer, setting up a fight. Let's say this is, you know, maybe would be about 20, 30 years ago now, but you got Mike Tyson who was in his prime, right? Pretty ferocious fighter, one of the best fighters ever. And he told an amateur fighter, I'd never got in the ring, and said, hey, I got you your first fight. Your, fight, your first fights with Mike Tyson, right? And say this fighter doesn't know who Mike Tyson is. So he thinks, oh, all right. You know, sounds like kind of a tough name, but I think I could take him. I've been training, I've been practicing, but he has no experience, right? There's not much fear there because he doesn't know who Mike Tyson is. But if you know who Mike Tyson is and you've never stepped in the ring before and you hear my first fights with Mike Tyson, I'm going to be pretty afraid because I know I don't have a shot to fight him. And what Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, remember who you are serving. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's going to come a day, just like all of us, that we're going to stand face to face with Jesus. The same Jesus that walked the earth 2,000 years ago, the Jesus who was crucified for our sins, the Jesus who rose from the dead, the Jesus who's coming back to judge the world. And he's saying, Timothy, remember, you will be held accountable for the way you've lived your life. Believers and non-believers alike. Now, believers don't have to worry about being condemned, right, because we are saved by the grace of God, but we are still held accountable for how we stewarded the time, the resources, our family, our gifts that God has given us. And we look at the life of Jesus, and we look at what he has done for us, that Jesus... We know he lived a life of suffering, right? That's one thing that Paul tells Timothy to do and endure afflictions. That Jesus lived a life of every sort of suffering you could think of. He had emotional suffering. He had mental suffering. He was rejected by his closest friends. He was literally crucified on a cross. That Jesus went through the most agonizing type of life that we could we could think of. And I want to look at a scripture in John chapter fifteen that talks about us as his disciples. Because I think a lot of times we go through hard things in life, we begin to feel sorry for ourselves, right? Now I think Timothy, maybe in some ways he was feeling sorry for himself. There was a lot of hard things going on in his life. But Paul's saying, Timothy, if you get your eyes off yourself, you put your eyes on Jesus Christ, all of a sudden suffering becomes a privilege instead of something to complain about. Suffering becomes an honor. I get to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ, not that I have to suffer. And Jesus in John 15, verse 18 says this, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And this phrase never ceases to amaze me that God, God became a man, right? Jesus was fully God and fully man. And that God himself spilt his blood for sinners, right? God himself did not esteem himself too good to spill his blood for you. And think about it. If, if the 10 worst things i had ever done were portrayed up on the screens, right? And you guys got to all look at my life. I probably wouldn't look like someone worth dying for, even for you. might say, ah, I don't know if I want to die for Luke. But the king of kings, God himself became a man, shed his blood, lived a perfect life of obedience for us to know him. And see, when we know somebody who's really sacrificed for us, when you know someone who's loved you, I mean, I think about my mom, right? If my mom were to sit me down and say, Luke, I've got something really important that you need to do. I look at my mom and I see someone who's been patient with me, someone who's loved me, someone who's literally brought me into the world, someone who's encouraged me, prayed for me, shared the gospel with me since I was a little kid. If my mom sits me down and says, Tim or Luke, I've got something really important for you to do, that hits pretty deep in my heart because of my love for my mom, right? But when I was in college playing football, some of my coaches I didn't love as much as I love my mom And they weren't always the most godly guys and they were pretty negative. And sometimes they ask me to do stuff. It's like, ah, don't really want to do that. Even if you think it's important, I don't really want to do that because of maybe the way you treat me. I believe one of the things that Paul is bringing Timothy back to is, Timothy, I charge you. And as I charge you, don't forget who you're serving, how much he's loved you, how much he's poured out and sacrificed for you, how much grace that he's given you. Because I believe, I know this is true in my life, My spiritual discipline and my spiritual obedience is directly correlated to how much I value what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross. That when I am actively thinking about the joy of my salvation, when I really am am grateful that even though there's nothing I could do to save myself, that Jesus Christ at the right time shed his blood for my sin, that empowers me. Man, that gets me excited to obey him because of what he's done for me. It's not an obligation to obey Christ, but it's a joy. I don't obey him for what I can get out of it, but I obey him because of who he is, what he's done, and that it's the greatest privilege of my life. I can't pay him back, but I can obey him. I can give him my all. And so as Paul challenges Timothy here, he says, Timothy, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, remember who you're serving. This isn't, you're not serving a church, you're not serving a program, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. But the second thing that he mentions here is he mentions the judgment of Jesus. And as I mentioned that each one of us will stand before God and give an account of everything we've done the good, the bad. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, every man will give an account of what he's done, whether good or bad in this life. And then he says, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Because we understand the reality of judgment, it motivates me that every single person I come in contact with will also be held accountable to God. And I want my life to be poured out for the purpose of preparing people for the return of of Jesus Christ. I think this comes back again to us understanding even what the return of Christ really means, what that looks like. And I want to look at a scripture here in Revelation um, chapter 19. This isn't just true of pastors. I think this is true of every believer that we should be living in light of the gospel. And Paul's saying, Timothy, I charge you, be in this spiritual battle. Timothy, I charge you, remember who you're serving. It's a privilege, you're serving God. You're getting the opportunity. God doesn't owe us to serve him, but we get the opportunity to serve him, that this should be a privilege to lay your life on the line for Jesus Christ. But also remember, Timothy, That every single person that comes to your church on a Sunday, every single person you run out, run into on the street, every single person you run into at the grocery store, whatever it may be, remember, Timothy, there's a day that Jesus Christ is coming back. And that shouldn't be a threat for the church. We should be excited about Christ's return. That's when he's going to redeem our bodies. We have a new mind, a new body. We need to live with him forever in his new kingdom. But it is a threat. It is a concern for those who don't know Jesus Christ for those who haven't surrendered their life, for those who haven't trusted in the gospel, they are in grave danger. And in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, he says this. This is the picture of Jesus Christ returning that Paul's talking about in 2 Timothy 4. He wants Timothy to be reminded of this daily, to be thinking of this return of Christ. It says, now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, the believer, for the believer, this should be encouraging. That's the God. That's the power of the God who fights our battles. That's the power of the God whose spirit lives in us. That's the power of the God who forgives us and gives us the avenue to live a victorious life in Christ. It's great if that God's on your side, right? It's a very terrifying thing if that's the God that's against you. And that's the thing we have to remember is that as we come into contact with people, as we are sharing our faith, as we have an opportunity to be a witness for Christ, there is no neutral ground. The Bible says we're either sons of God or enemies of God. There's two sides, that we were either with him in his angel army as a part of his return or we are the ones that will be fighting against him. I'm not going to go through this passage right now, but I want to encourage you, if you got the time, to read Isaiah 63. This is a a fulfillment of this prophecy. and Isaiah 63, it describes why Jesus Christ, his his robes are, are covered in blood. I think this is important because I believe this is a key element of what Paul is encouraging Timothy with, to keep him on the straight and narrow, to keep him spiritually keen to what God has called him to do. And for the longest time, I thought that the robes covered in blood were like the atonement, the forgiveness of Christ. But when you read Isaiah 63, what you find is Jesus Christ has been in the winepress of God's wrath. And when you think of a wine press, what happens in a wine press, you stomp on grapes right, till they become juice, and you yourself end up being splattered by the juice. You become stained in grape juice. And what this picture is, a very terrifying picture that Jesus Christ has has trampled his enemies until he has become covered in the blood of those who have rejected him and the blood of those who have rebelled against him. And what Paul is saying, Timothy, to Timothy, don't forget who you serve. This God who's loved you laid down his life for you. Timothy, don't forget who you serve. You're, You're held accountable to Christ on how you lead, how you represent yourself to the world and to the church. But Timothy, also don't, don't, don't forget, remember that Jesus Christ has given us a period of grace. But when that period of grace is up at his appearing, there is no more second chances. And for those people who have not repented and believed in the gospel, that they will be trampled under the wrath of Jesus Christ. Because he has to. If Christ doesn't get rid of evil, there's no heaven. In order for heaven to be perfect, Jesus has to eradicate and judge everything that is evil. So the number one thing that a disciple must do to endure, we have to have an eternal perspective. We have to get our eyes off ourselves, on who we're following and on the reality of not only our own accountability, but the accountability of those that we come across on a daily basis. Now, this is a pretty heavy charge that, that Paul starts out with. Now, this is his, his advice. Again, his, his exhortation through the Holy Spirit. I like it because I think it's pretty simple. Verse two, preach the word. That's what we want us to do. Preach the word. Let people know the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Don't take it to yourself, but proclaim the gospel of Christ. Teach the word. Convince, rebuke, exhort that we would be a people. And I think this is so important that we're gonna look at in a second, that I have blind spots in my life. There are things, there's a ways that I'm sinning, things I'm not even aware of, maybe things I'm unaware of that I need accountability for. And my only hope, To overcome those things, it's three things. The word of God that we're gonna see. To preach the word, that the word of God would impact my heart. The second thing is that the Holy Spirit has to do the work in me. I can't do it myself. It has to be God's grace that changes my heart. But the third thing is you guys. Is the body of Christ that can call me out, can say, hey, Luke, that wasn't true. Or Luke, what you're doing, you're preaching one thing, you're doing another thing and it's wrong. Man, I want to let you know, even if you were misinformed, if you said that to me, I would greatly appreciate it. That you love me enough to hold me accountable to what I'm preaching, to what I'm saying. That if you guys don't do that, who's going to do that, right? That it's the church, it's the body of Christ that comes together to hold us accountable. And um, if you guys know where the term Berean, right? Mitchell Berean Church. Bereans were those that when Paul preached, it said that they took what he said, they went back to the scripture and they searched the scripture to know if what Paul was saying is true. So Tim, Paul's advice, his exhortation to Timothy is Timothy with this eternal perspective, preach the word, prioritize the word of God. And if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter four, verse 11 gives us a really good picture of this, 11 through 13. He says, "Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience." So, what can what can help us not fall into disobedience? Verse twelve: For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. See, we read Hebrews 4.12 a lot. That's about the power of the word, but it's directly connected to verse 13 about judgment. That the word of God is what prepares me to stand before God. The word of God is what prepares me for judgment and for those around us. That the word of God is written by a living God. It's a living book written to living people right? That it works in our heart. I want to encourage you with this, that if reading the Bible is tough for you, um, that's right. That's okay. Because you should be on a process of learning how to study your, the Bible, how to get deeper in the scripture. I want you to raise your hand real quick. If you've done anything, um, learned a subject, and the first time you picked it up and read it, super easy. You, you are a master of it. You just start teaching everybody else. Never happens, right? That we have to put time and dedication into something. And I just want to encourage you just because the Bible's difficult doesn't mean there's something wrong with you or that you're not smart, that the Bible, the Holy Spirit will give us discernment and he'll guide us and he'll lead us. And we have classes here like Bible basics or our classes um, during the 930 hour that help equip us as believers of how we can learn from God's word so that God can speak to us directly. And... Um, I'm gonna use this analogy real quick because I think this was so helpful for me. It's crazy how much you can learn. This is why it's important to be around new believers, how much you can learn from new believers because um, we were talking with with Julius and we were doing this Bible study before before Sunday and one of the guys that I was sharing the gospel with, I had said, you know, does this make sense? He goes, yeah, it does, but I feel like just something's a little bit missing. I said, okay, exactly. Because what God wants you to do, he doesn't want you just to take my word for it. He wants you to be convicted and stirred by what I'm saying, but he wants you to go to him because God has not set up the church to be a hierarchy system where I'm the intermediator between you and God. I'm supposed to convict and exhort and challenge you so that you go to God because that's where we get that confidence and assurance and life change. And it was so funny because when I explained that to the guys, the one guy said, man, God's smart. That makes sense. It does make sense, right? Because God doesn't want a halfway relationship with you. He doesn't want to work through me to you or through any person to you. Now he does use people, absolutely. But God wants you to know him. And the only way you know him is if you go to him. So, he's not going to let all your questions be answered by other people. He demands that we go to living an active word that is able to work on our heart. So, Paul is exhorting Timothy Timothy, the word of God is sharp. Preach the word, get people in the scriptures, and through exhortation, rebuke, all the things he listed, that disciples will have endurance. And so, that's the second thing one, to live with an eternal perspective. But, two, a disciple who endures, their life sur- source is the scripture. Sermons are great, but they go to God for themselves, just like the Bereans did. The third thing that we're going to find, though, is that disciple who, a disciple who endures must endure affliction. There's going to be problems. And we see in verse 3, there is, there is um, pushback against what Timothy is doing. Paul says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. do the afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. There's a couple of things that are important here, but the primary one is why are, they led, why are people led astray? Verse three, got any brave person who wants to yell out? They are led away by their own desires. See, this is what's so important for each one of us to know. We have sinful desires in us. And if we let those sinful desires grow, they're gonna be attracted to what makes us comfortable. They're gonna be attracted to the things that affirm what we're doing because we don't wanna change. We wanna keep living the way we wanna live. We wanna, we wanna rebel against God. We wanna do our own thing. That's how I am. And so if I'm not allowing the word of God to cut my heart, pretty soon I'm being led by my own desires instead of the desires of the word. And this is true for each one of us. And I think it's so important to acknowledge that even on a daily basis with your mouth of say, God, I am vulnerable to following my own desires. Lord, lead me by your truth, by your spirit, confessing that to the Lord. But I wanna look at two scriptures here. One is in Jeremiah seventeen nine. And he says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? You guys ever heard of the phrase lately? Follow your heart, man. Just follow your heart, follow your dreams. Don't do it. Unless you wanna be desperately wicked, don't do it. Because that's what happens. If I follow my heart, I become desperately wicked. But if I die to my heart, I die to myself and I give Christ my heart, he gives me a new heart. And now that heart doesn't have to be desperately wicked. So I think we can read these scriptures about, you know, um, itching ears that want flattery. That's not just true for like new believers. That's true for me. Every day I need to make sure I'm not just listening to what I want to listen to, but I'm allowing God to change my heart so that my heart wants the things of God. My second one that I love for um, is in Proverbs fourteen twelve. I told the first service, this is my... Go to scripture I have to be reminded of when I think I know I'm absolutely right about whatever I'm about to do or whatever I'm about to say. And he- or Proverbs fourteen twelve says this, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You know what seemed really good to Adam and Eve? To eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Said it looked good to their eyes, was pleasurable. It will look good to them. And what did it do? Killed them. Right? A lot of things look good to us in this life and unless the word of God is guiding us, it leads us to death. So the first thing that a disciple needs to do is to be eternally perspective to endure. The second thing is to be, have the word of God be our life source. But the third thing with this idea in mind is we need to be obedient oriented and not just outcome oriented. If I am obeying God just for what I can get in return, That's actually self-worship, really is what it is. I'm obeying God because I feel good about it. And if I feel good about it, I'm gonna keep doing it. And as long as it benefits me, I'm gonna keep doing it. But obedience to God should not be about what we get in return. But obedience to God is I get to obey God because of who he is. Because of the gospel, I have a joy in obeying Christ. And I think we see this in 2 Timothy because the things that Paul tells Timothy to do aren't outcome-oriented. Now, I'm not saying we didn't want, don't want outcomes and there's times where it's really important to evaluate outcomes, but the things he tells him to do is to be watchful. That's personal obedience. Timothy, be watchful, be ready in season and out of season. Be ready to go. He tells him to endure afflictions. It's not based on other people, but to obey God, be, endure afflictions, to do the work of an evangelist, to be advancing the gospel regardless of the persecution inside or outside of the church. And finally, to fulfill his ministry. Each one of us, I believe, has a calling from, from God. Each one of us has a responsibility. For some people, it could be ministry. It could be um, to be a teacher, to be a coach. Whatever God has called you to, to steward, he wants you to fulfill that to the best of your ability, regardless of what happens. That there's been seasons of ministry that have been really fruitful for me and seasons of ministry that have not been so fruitful for me. But I believe my job in every case preach the word in season, out of season, be watchful, be faithful, pray, do whatever I could do. But the outcome's on God. And that lets me sleep good at night because I don't have to, I can't save anybody. I can't convince anybody. I can present the gospel and I pray that God uses that. But those things ultimately are in God's hands. And Paul reminds Timothy, Timothy, don't be outcome oriented, be obedience oriented. Find your joy, not in what you get, but how you obey Jesus Christ. What's cool about this scripture is Paul now um, shares his life of being a faithful disciple. And in verse six, Paul says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. He's about to be martyred. Paul went through it all. He's saying, Timothy, I'm asking you to be a living sacrifice. I've been a living sacrifice. The last thing that disciples of Christ who endure what, what they do is they don't just preach about it, They do it. They're not talkers of the word. They're not hearers of the word. They're doers of the word. And as doers of the word, we endure to the end. Verse seven, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He fulfilled his ministry. He's asking Timothy to fulfill Timothy's ministry. Verse eight, he talks about judgment, just like he encouraged Timothy. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I want to come out of that scripture with a cross-reference here, which will close us out for today. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. And Paul says this, but by the grace of God... I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. What's so amazing about the gospel is the grace of God is not just given to us to forgive us. That's huge. We're forgiven by grace through faith, but the grace of God is meant to empower us. The grace of God is what gives us the power to believe. That as soon as I become a Christian, God doesn't just save me and say, do the rest on your own. He saves me and then he gives me the power to obey him. That it's not about what I do for him, but it's his working that's happening in me. And Paul says that God's grace has produced this work. And then what does Paul get at the end of his life? Is he looking forward to? The crown of righteousness, right? Right not for works he did, but the works that God did through him. And isn't it an amazing thing that God gives us the power to obey him that we could have never done on our own, then we get to heaven, and he gives us a reward. Can you imagine that standing before Jesus Christ? The picture we just read, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords is in all of his glory and he gives you a crown. And again, this is why I just think this is absolutely imperative for the disciple that we get so earthly minded, we get so focused on how the Bible can even solve my current problems. And we lose sight of I'm doing this for an eternal king, for eternal awards, and my life is about this small. And in the meantime, my goal is not comfort. My goal is not to do what I wanna do. My goal is to represent Jesus Christ and to proclaim the message that he's coming back and that people have a choice. Bow to him now as Lord, bow to him later as judge, but either way, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we get the opportunity to be the city on the hill, the, the salt of the earth, to let people know of the love that we've experienced in Jesus Christ. So I wanna invite the worship team up and I wanna just encourage us as a church, are we ready for the return of Christ? And if you want to be a disciple who endures, my prayer for you, my prayer for our church is that we know who we're serving. We know the person of Jesus Christ. That we have a reality of judgment and living with an eternal perspective. That we're focused on obedience, not just outcomes. That the word of God is our life source. And that we obey God, not for what we can get from him, but what we can give because of what he's given for us. Because he paid a greater price than we could ever imagine for our soul so that he could have a living relationship with you. So, Father God, I thank you for your faithfulness. God, I thank you that um, we can't save ourselves. Lord, we thank you that there's only one Savior and one mediator between God and man. And we pray that, Jesus, you would do a work in our heart, Lord, that we would turn from our sin. We would turn from trying to fix ourselves and make our home in this life. And we realize this life is vanity. Lord, it's what your scripture says. It's vanity. But the true life is to live with you forever. And that's what we're, we're working towards, Lord. That's what we're living for. Thank you for this church, Lord, and I pray that we would be disciples who aren't just around for a little while, Lord, but we would be disciples who endure to the end, who fulfill our ministry and finish our race. And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen.